Job chapter 36, we're going to read the first four verses. It says, Elihu also proceeded and said, bear with me a little and I'll show you that there are yet words to speak on God's behalf. I will fetch my knowledge from afar. I will ascribe righteousness to my maker. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. I'm going to read further. Behold, God is mighty, but despises no one. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not preserve the life of the wicked, but gives justice to the oppressed. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but they are on the throne with kings, for he has seated them forever, and they are exalted. And if they are bound in fetters, held in the cords of affliction, then he tells them their work and their transgressions, that they have acted defiantly. He also opens their ear to instruction and commands that they turn from iniquity. If they obey and serve him, they shall spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. And if they do not obey, they will perish by the sword. Remember the book of Job, it kind of reads like a drama, like a play. And remember, for those of you who have been here the whole time, the first two chapters, right away, you are exposed to information that you wish you could shout from the rooftops throughout the book. We're introduced to Job. The book opens with a conversation between God and Satan and a test, a test that involves the faithfulness of Job. God allows Satan to take all that Job has, and Job responds both in worship and in sorrow. God allows Satan to afflict Job with a catastrophic illness, a a plague of boils, and then Job is invited by his less than understanding wife, why don't you just curse God and die? But Job remains faithful. He is visited by three friends who at first mourn with him and then seek to comfort him. But eventually, their presence will result in a series of conversations that will result in accusation. The conversations soon become criticism. And Job is left not only with trials and tribulations, but now he's also left with the strong task of defending his own integrity. And the final series of speeches involves a man named Elihu. Elihu believes that he's tasked with the job of correcting Job, of setting Job straight of correcting Job's bad theology about suffering and God. The monologue began in chapter 2, continued in chapter 33, began to wear on us in chapter 34. We threw up our hands in chapter 35. And now it's still chapter 36. The monologue began a long time ago. The lecture has turned into a series of lectures. (laughs) This last week I was speaking to a group and I said, do you know what it means when a pastor looks at his watch? And they said, no, what does it mean? I go, it doesn't mean anything. (laughs) 
Some people, they just keep going and going. Elihu maintains that God speaks in dreams and visions in Job chapter 33. He speaks in suffering in Job 33, 19. He speaks through the mediating ministries of messengers or angels in chapter 33, verses 23 through 26. Now in chapter 36, he suggests that God can use suffering for good in verses 1 through 15. He invites Job to change his attitude in verses 16 through 21. Elihu admits that God's ways are sometimes hard to comprehend and understand, but he invites Job to consider how nature demonstrates God's greatness in chapter 37. And it serves kind of as a prelude, if you will, into the appearance of God and the greatness of God. And when you talk about the goodness of God and the greatness of God, there's something that wells up inside of a person's heart as they're filled with hope. And so what does Elihu get right? Well, he's right about God's majesty. He's right about God's faithfulness to the righteous. He's right about that there are lots of reasons why people are in pain and why people get into trouble and why people suffer. And he's right about our reactions to suffering. That they can be helpful or they can be harmful. Elihu is right that God is just and honors righteousness. Elihu thinks that Job's sufferings can only be explained by God's purposes. And to teach Job the dangers of sin and And of judgment on sinners and the promise of prosperity for those who repent. And in this section, Elihu claims that he can help Job in verses 1 through 4. He then offers an explanation of how God deals with people. More importantly, with people in pain in verses 5 through 15. He warns Job in verses 16 through 25. And then he invites Job to consider the greatness of God from verse 27 all the way to verse 33. And then most of chapter 37 is going to be devoted to that theme. The theme in chapter 36, the goodness of God. The theme in chapter 37, the greatness of God. It begins with Elihu's claims. Look what it says. Elihu also proceeded and said, bear with me a little and I'll show you that there are yet words to speak on God's behalf. Again, Elihu invites Job, stick with me, bear with me. He understands that the speech has been long. He may be experiencing what a lot of public speakers experience. And that is you see people starting to nod off. And you, start, you see him starting to go. And as you see him starting to go, you say, oh, let's just bring this back up. I need you to wake up. It reminds me of a story of a, of a preacher who was always having this guy fall asleep in church. And so he thought he'd play a little prank on him. He said, the guy fell asleep as usual in his service. And he whispers, Everyone who's going to heaven remains seated. And everyone who's going to hell, stand up! And the guy woke up and he stood up and he's looking around and all the other people are looking at him and laughing. 
If you fall asleep, I'm not going to do that to you. (laughs) Because I've noticed that humiliation doesn't really attract people to church. (laughs) Elihu asks Job, stick with me. No matter how tired you are, I still have a few truths that I want to impart. Look what he says in verse 3. I will fetch my knowledge from afar. In other words, I'm going to get my information from somewhere other than here. I will ascribe righteousness to my maker. For, for truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. So the more Elihu talks, the more Elihu thinks, wow, what I'm saying sounds pretty stinking good. His confidence continues to grow. He thinks that he can really help Job. But this should cause each and every one of us to pause again for just a moment. Is it true that people with an incorrect or an incomplete knowledge can sometimes offer help, comfort, respite? I think that the answer is yes. What is Elihu claiming? He's basically saying, if you'll stick with me, I can help you. I have knowledge worth knowing. The friends of Job repeatedly tried to convince Job that his suffering was due to unconfessed sin. They had one message, turn from your sin, confess your sin, accept the Lord, and everything will be fine. Job, of course, is dealing with the problem that he's unaware of any sin, some terrible transgression. Elihu hangs his credentials Next to Job on the trash heap. Elihu says, I have knowledge and understanding from afar. That is from God in verse 3. Elihu believes that his words are from God and not from man. And that his wisdom comes from God. And I suspect that Elihu believes that he has made a careful study of humanity. That he understands how people are and the way that they behave. He believes that he has made an extensive evaluation both of the revelation of God and nature and the things that have been passed on from generation to generation. Elihu claims broad and extensive knowledge and his approach will be humble. He says, I'm going to ascribe righteousness to my maker, not to myself in verse 3. That his teaching is true and not false in verse 4. That it's comprehensive and sincere again in verse 4. So what is he claiming? Number one, he says, I have knowledge and understanding that comes from God. Number two, I can defend God's justice. That's what he means in verse 3. When he says, I will ascribe righteousness to my maker. Remember, Job had expressed the feeling. I feel like I'm being treated unfairly. I feel like I'm being treated unjustly. I feel like my suffering and pain is disproportionate to anything that I might have done. Job can't wrap his head around the sheer volume of suffering. Again, for those of you who have been following along, you know what's happened. His livestock is stolen. His children are dead. His job is gone. He has what seems like an incurable disease. It all seems so unreasonable. So unfair. So unkind. 
In Elihu's word, God isn't unjust and God isn't unfair. And we know that that's true. We know in our heart that's not, that, that God is, is fair and that he is just and that he is kind. And so Elihu believes that Job is guilty of injustice because he's accused God of injustice. But if you read the text carefully, I think you're going to come to a different conclusion. And the conclusion that I think you're going to draw is that Job doesn't accuse God of being unjust and unkind and unfair, but that, that he simply feels that way. Are our feelings always indicative of reality? No. Do we always have control over the way we feel? No. Elihu believes he has a full understanding of the issue. When he says in verse 4, For truly my words are not false, or one who is perfect in knowledge is with you. One of two statements is being made. He's either saying, I have a complete, full understanding of the situation in front of me, and I think that I can speak to this issue intelligently. He's either saying that, or he's claiming that God has perfect understanding. If he's claiming that God has perfect understanding, I think he's on safe ground. If he's claiming that he has a perfect understanding of Job's case, then his claim is false. Since Elihu is completely unaware of chapter 1 and chapter 2. By the way, because you are aware of chapter 1 and chapter 2 and you understand at least the, the, what's taken place, it gives you a, a heightened sense of, of compassion and sensitivity. You understand that there are far more things that are taking place and sometimes we lose that sense with one another. We look at a person who's suffering. We look at a person who's in pain. We look at a person who's in a tragic circumstance. And we begin to go through our laundry list of the reasons why it might be happening. And we discover something that maybe we don't have all of the answers. And maybe we don't have all of the information that we need to render a fair judgment. The young man, Elihu is claiming a level of scholarship and understanding of theology and philosophy and anthropology and even biology and earth science that he doesn't really possess. Whatever Elihu claims as a scholar or as a philosopher, he claims his knowledge comes from God and that if he can help Job return to health and prosperity or he can prepare him for death. Either way, he says, Job, you're in trouble. And either I can help get you out of trouble and get you back to the place of wholeness and wellness that you want to belong, or I can prepare you for the inevitable. You have a terminal disease and you're going to die, but at least I'm going to help you die with a right relationship with God. Can everyone who claims that they can help you really help you? Yeah, that's the answer. Can even well-meaning people who claim that they can help you always help you? No. Does Elihu have an exaggerated sense of his own insight and ability? Maybe. But what's interesting is that 
with his limited knowledge and his limited understanding, he offers some amazing insight. In Romans chapter 12, verse 16, Paul said, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. And I I suggest that if Elihu has a problem here, it might be that he has a little bit more elevated sense of his own ability to deal with the problem that might be true. But if I am honest, I find myself guilty of the same problem. I sometimes exaggerate my ability to bring real insight into a particular situation. And even reading this causes me once again to remind myself, to humble myself, to to not pretend to know what I don't know. In 1 Corinthians 8, 2, Paul writes, And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. I think we're on much safer ground instead of saying, I think I know how I can help you. I think we're on much safer ground if we say, I love the Lord. I love him. I don't know everything about everything, but I love the Lord. And I want to bring you to a place where you will love him also. And perhaps we can gain insight into the circumstances that we face when we begin to explore what God is doing And so that's exactly what's happening in verses 5 through 15. Elihu is going to offer some explanations. And what's incredible is the insight that he does have. In verse 5 it says, Behold, God is mighty but despises no one. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not preserve the lofty or the life of the wicked but gives justice to the oppressed. His claims are lofty. Elihu offers a series of explanations. How God deals with people. Behold, look, God is mighty, true, and despises no one. That is true too. In what sense? Is God mighty? Yes. Is God compassionate for those who are in pain and who are suffering? The answer is yes. And by the way, when you talk to a hurting person, when you talk to a person in pain, when you talk to a person who's in profound difficulty, and the moment you say, you know, God is a wonderful God and he's a mighty God, and guess what? He also is compassionate towards everyone. There's something that happens in almost each and every heart. There's a spark that begins to awaken inside of a person's heart, and they begin to understand that there might be hope in their circumstance. And I think that that's what's happening. Elihu is now going to get at the core or the root of his counsel. How does God really deal with the afflicted? How does God deal with the righteous? How does God deal with those people who suffer? He despises no one. He's mighty in strength and understanding. Elihu acknowledges powerful, mighty, Remains filled with compassion. And whenever someone says that God is great and that God cares. You're also giving them the thing that they need most and that's hope. And whenever someone gives a person hope. There's an opportunity to wake up one more morning. Elihu gives examples that point to the fact that God is all powerful. 
and all-merciful. He does not preserve the life of the wicked, but gives justice to the oppressed. That example is an example of the fact that he is powerful and that he is merciful. He executes justice in what sense? He doesn't preserve the life of the wicked in verse 6. This is his way of saying there is a real God who will render justice for every wrong thing that's done. While it is true that the Lord executes justice on the wicked, he preserves or helps or brings justice to the oppressed. And and this might be a hint. It's not a so subtle hint, but I think it might be a hint. When he says he does not preserve the life of the wicked but gives justice to the oppressed, he might be making the statement, that's you, Job. You're not going to make it if you fall into the category of the wicked. But he will give justice to you if you are, in fact, in the category of the oppressed. Whatever else Elihu is offering Job, Elihu is claiming that Job need not suffer any longer. That there's no more need to question God. That he doesn't have to have a trial before God. But he falls back into the tired argument of the three people who have gone before him. Job, repent. If you'll just cry out, God will meet your need. God will restore you. If you'll just admit that what you've done is wrong. Or he'll prepare you to die. In verse 7, he does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but they are on the throne with kings, for he has seated them forever, and they are exalted. Now Elihu suggests that God watches over the righteous. He never takes his eyes off of them. And we think from the rest of the Bible that that's an absolutely true statement. When believers face catastrophe or trial or they're heartbroken or they're suffering or they're afflicted or they're in trial, and we understand that the rest of the Bible has this to say that God is near to the brokenhearted. He draws near to those people who are afflicted because when you're hurt and you're alone and your heart is broken and you feel like you're all alone and that nobody cares, that's when you're vulnerable to satanic attack. And Elihu says, no, the real God is the God who watches over the righteous. He never takes his eyes off of the righteous. And the Lord will deliver them, whether temptation or trial or adversity. God will watch them. He will reward them. He will exalt them. That's what it means when it says he does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but they are on the throne with kings. In the book of Ephesians, Paul writes and he says, you are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. He understands that the real God of the universe who is exempt from the past or the present or the future sees all things in the eternal now. And so that whatever your circumstance is, even though you might feel pain and afflicted and disconnected, Paul envisions you in heaven with Jesus right now. Even though it's hard for us to see ourselves in that circumstance. But since that's our eventual future, we can say it with confidence. And that's what he's saying in verse 7. But they are in the throne with kings 
he has seated them forever, and they are exalted. It's Elihu's way of saying, if God successfully negotiates what's going on with you, and you die, then God will reward you forever. Paul speaks of such things in 2 Corinthians 4.17. He says, For our light affliction, which is just for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, think not it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings that when his glory shall be revealed in you, you may be glad with exceeding joy the confidence and the counsel that was given to the early church who were experiencing pain and suffering was hold on hold on hold on in psalm 34:19 the psalmist says many are the afflictions of the righteous but the lord delivers him out of all of them It says in verse 8, and if they are bound in fetters, those are chains. If they're held in cords of affliction, I suggest that this affliction might be mental. It might be emotional. It might be spiritual, but whether chains visible or chains invisible, whether cords visible or cords invisible, God knows. In verse 9, then he tells them their work and their transgression, that they have acted defiantly. He also opens their ear to instruction and commands that they turn from iniquity. If they obey and serve him, they shall spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. But if they do not obey, they shall perish by the sword and they shall die without knowledge. Elihu is offering, again, more insight. And verses 8 through 12 are very interesting for a number of different reasons. Mostly because Elihu is suggesting that God can and does use suffering for good. And the reason why this is such an enormous statement is this, this hasn't been revealed up until now. The other people have basically said... You've done something horrible and terrible. The reason why you're experiencing such horrible, terrible catastrophes in your life is because you've blown it big time. Elihu is at least able to go beyond that superficial assessment and begin to ask and answer a different question. Might there be other reasons why people are in pain or people are suffering or people are in trouble? And so that's what he does. He he. He suggests that God can and does use suffering for good for those who face difficulty and trial and affliction. Paul summarizes that sentiment in Romans 8.28 when he says, And we know that God is causing all things to work together for good for them that love him. To those who are the called according to his purposes. Job's friends have offered that Job's sufferings are due to unconfessed sin. Elihu manages to think deeper And say, there might be other reasons. So what might those reasons be? Number one, 
the Lord can use suffering to cause people to evaluate their lives, making sure that their relationship with him and others is what it should be. And if they are bound in fetters, then he tells them their work and their transgressions. It's, it's his way of saying, hey, look, you could be suffering because God wants you to pause and evaluate your life and look at your life. Maybe he's inviting you to examine your relationship with him and your relationship with each other. Maybe it isn't exactly how it should be. That maybe God is using the time and the circumstances to steer you in a different direction. A direction that you honor him and serve him. He offers the suggestion that God can use suffering to isolate and reveal sin in our life. That we engage in an honest assessment of our life. And that we look at our beliefs and our behavior. And we ask and answer the question, is my belief self-destructive? Is my behavior destructive towards myself or towards other people? And maybe it's time to take a good hard look. Or number three, the Lord can use suffering to stem the tide. To correct sinful thinking and sinful behavior. To stop us from doing further harm to ourselves, Or further harm. To prevent further damage. To prevent further pain. To prevent further suffering. And the Lord can use suffering to cause people to repent. To turn from their sin. To turn from shameful behavior. To cause them to cease and desist before They wind up destroying themselves or destroying someone else. And God can use suffering to cause people to remember his wonderful promises if they'll obey him and serve him. That your life doesn't have to be the kind of life that you have. It can be a life of prosperity and health in verse 11. If they obey and serve him, they shall spend their days in prosperity And their years and pleasures, they can experience abundant life, be victorious over trial, experience the strength of God, live and prepare to live a life that's different. And there seems to be an element of truth and a a truism to all of those things. Can God use suffering to warn people? I think that the answer is yes. If they disobey him, they'll perish. And sadly, he says, they'll die never knowing God, never experiencing his presence, never experiencing his forgiveness, never experiencing his abundance. So he also points out the fact that there are people who are experiencing trial and difficulty. And Elihu invites Job to consider his own life or perhaps to answer the question again, why are you allowing this to happen? And in expressing these things, Elihu invites Job to consider, again, his life. And then in verse 13, look what it says. But the hypocrites in heart store up wrath. The hypocrites in heart that he's talking about are the godless, are the unbeliever. But the hypocrites in heart store up wrath. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth and their life ends among the perverted persons. He delivers the poor in their affliction and he opens their ears in oppression. What other explanations does Elihu offer? He offers that a person's reaction 
to suffering will reveal something of what's actually going on inside of their heart. The unrighteous respond to suffering by harboring bitterness or resentment, verse 13. But the hypocrite in heart stores up wrath. In what sense? In the sense of, I don't understand why all of this is happening. But whatever the reason might, might be, I'm going to be angry towards God. I'm going to be bitter towards God. I'm going to take God and I'm going to blame God. The godless, the unrighteous, the hypocrite doesn't live for Jesus. They don't live for God. They live for this world. And so for the godless, I want you to just think about it. Comfort leaves. Pleasure leaves. Security leaves. And because remember, you don't know Jesus and you don't know God and pleasure is all you have and comfort is all you have and your home is all you have and your marriage is all you have and your job is all you have. Imagine when that is threatened. You don't have God and now you don't have those things. And they become bitter and discouraged when suffering interrupts their plan or their lifestyle or their future. The godless walk on earth without God. They don't have his presence. They don't have his comfort. They don't have his promises to protect them. They don't know God. And say that they don't necessarily cry out to God for help in verse 13. They do not cry for help when he binds them. And as a result, according to Elihu, they die. A premature death in verse 14. Look what it says. They die in youth. In other words, they die before their time. And their life ends up or ends among the perverted persons. And in verse 14, the, the Hebrew expression for perverted persons is a very unique and specific designation. It seems in the ancient Hebrew world to refer to the male temple prostitutes who, who sold themselves for sexual favors. The idea being a person whose mental, emotional, spiritual, moral, cultural restraints were completely gone. And so in verse 15 he says he delivers the poor in their affliction and opens their ears in oppression. Two explanations. How the ungodly react to suffering. How the godly react to suffering. He delivers the poor in their affliction. Are these the financially poor? Not necessarily, although it may mean that. It could mean the kind of poverty that Jesus speaks of in Matthew chapter 5 where he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who are impoverished in their own assessment of themselves and they understand that the only way that they're going to have any hope whatsoever 
is because of God. Their hearts are open to God. They seek God. They want to know the purpose. Their heart is open to Jesus and their mind and their life and their circumstances and their home and their marriage. They're open to what God wants for them. And so they begin to ask and answer the question, I'm listening, Lord, and I want to hear what you have to say in order for me to understand what's going on in my life. They listen and understand and learn from the experience. And if need be, After listening and learning from the experience, they go, maybe I was going in a a wrong direction. Maybe I need to turn my life in a different direction. And so the idea that he gives in verse 15 is that God will deliver them. Either from the difficulty or he will deliver them through the difficulty. And we see that illustrated in the Bible, don't we? With Daniel and the three servants in the fiery furnace. And remember, they said, you're going to bow to the king. And they said, you know, we're not going to bow to you. And we're, not, you know, we're only going to worship God. Don't you understand I can throw you into the fire? Yes. Don't you understand that I can deliver you? We understand that you can place us in the flame. And the truth is, we will be delivered. Either in it. Or through it, either way, God will sustain us. Whether Elihu is speaking in broad, sweeping generalities, or whether he specifically has Job in mind, it becomes something that the scholars they, they debate. They just go, "Hey, do you think Elihu's talking about Job? Do you think he's talking about people in general?" Does Elihu believe that lessons can be learned from suffering? Yes. Does he believe that anyone can apply those lessons? I think that he does. Therefore, does he believe that Job might be able to apply them? I think that he does. Can God speak to us and through us in suffering? I think that the answer is probably yes. Are we able to love and trust God in suffering? That becomes the question for all of us. I just got a copy of Randy Alcorn's new book. It's about suffering. And on the back cover of the book, he writes in a simple statement, suffering is God's invitation to trust him. But as you can imagine, many of us are reluctant. I mean, you might be invited to a party, and you might be invited to a dance, and you might be invited to a concert, you might be invited to church, and you can respectfully decline. But rarely do we think of suffering as an invitation. Jesus says in John 14, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus explains that this life isn't everything. That there's another life that awaits us. 
for the people who know him and love him. And then he issues a series of warnings. Look at them quickly. In verse 16, he says, Indeed, he would have brought you out of dire distress into a broad place where there is no restraint and what is set on your table would be full of riches. When he says, indeed, he would have brought you out of dire distress, the implication being that if Job would listen to him and would confess that there's something horrible and terribly wrong, then he would be, the cords would be lifted, the suffering would be gone. And instead of eating ash and dirt in the trash heap, his table would be filled with all of the delicacies that he used to enjoy. Elihu's claims and explanations now turn dark as he issues several warnings. Elihu warns Job that he's being pursued by God. Indeed, he would have brought you out of the distress. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Into a broad place. Indeed, he would have brought you. The implication being, God is after you, Job. And sometimes I think we can, with confidence, say to someone, I think the Lord's after you. I think the Lord's trying to speak to you. I think the Lord's pursuing you. I think that the Lord is pursuing you even in the midst of your suffering. Elihu is convinced that God wants to allow Job's suffering to use the suffering for good. Here's here's the philosophical premise. Can God use suffering to eventually result in something good? To even make that statement is revolutionary at this point in the text. And that's the great big idea. Can God use suffering and somehow make suffering accomplish good purposes and really, really think about Job and think about his circumstances and think about the fact that he doesn't have access to Isaiah, Jeremiah. He doesn't have access to the Psalms. He doesn't have access to the life of Jesus. And does the life of Jesus, if, if the life of Jesus tells us anything, does the life of Jesus tell us that there is some sort of redemptive quality that can take place, that one person can suffer, and it's going to result in healing for somebody else? And that's exactly what Jesus will wind up doing for you, for me. In light of this, Elihu thinks that Job should repent of his stubbornness and arrogance. Listen to what God says in the midst of the pain. In Elihu's way of thinking, God's trying to correct Job from some deadly sin, some enormous trespass. Again, I'm going to give Elihu the enormous benefit of the doubt. And say that Elihu is interested in helping Job. He says in verse 17, but you're filled with the judgment due to the wicked. Judgment and justice take hold of you because there is wrath. Beware lest he take you away with one blow for a large ransom would not help you avoid it. It's his way of saying, you can't buy your way out of this situation, Job. Will your riches or all of the mighty forces keep you from distress? Whether you're Gates or Steve Jobs or, or Warren Buffett. 
can money buy you out of some suffering? I think the answer is yes. Can money buy you out of all suffering? Probably not. I think I read the best definition in of all places, the Wall Street Journal. Here's what it said. Money is an article which may be used as a universal passport to everywhere except heaven. And a universal provider for everything except happiness. I was going, Wall Street Journal, preach it. In verse 20, do not desire the night when people are cut off in their place. Take heed, do not turn to iniquity, for you've chosen this rather than affliction. Behold, God is exalted by his power. Who teaches like him? Who has assigned him his way? Or who has said you have done wrong? Remember how to magnify his work of which men have sung. Everyone has seen it. Man looks on it from afar. So what are these other warnings? Let's look at them quickly. Elihu warns Job that he's suffering because of sin and God's judgment has come upon him because of his accusations against God. Like all wicked people, Job is become weighed down by the judgment like a heavy stone, like a crushing weight. Elihu imagines unconfessed sin has entangled him, that God's heavy hand of condemnation is weighing him down, and that Job needs to understand that and stop insisting that he's innocent. That if he would learn from God's judgment, confess and forsake his sin, everything would go right. And then number three, Job must guard against trusting wealth rather than God in verses 18 and 19. Elihu remembers Job's comment. Remember Job earlier had said, I wish I could just have the life that I used to have. But I think, again, Elihu misunderstood it. The life that he used to have. In peace and prosperity and health. His children are all alive. Who wouldn't want that? But Elihu, unfortunately, I think, misunderstands it as, I wish I could be rich again. And I wish I could have all that riches bring. I don't think that that's really what happened in Job's life. But Elihu, again, may have thought that Job was willing to trust his wealth rather than trust God. He warns that wealth can't save you from suffering or or deliver you from suffering. And I think that that's right. Job must guard against the thoughts of suicide. That's what I think it means in verses 20 and 21, look what it says. Do not desire the night. What night is he talking about? He's not just simply talking about when the sun goes down. He's talking about the long night. When people are cut off in their place. Take heed, do not turn to iniquity. I think what he's addressing is this issue that Job has brought up over and over again. Again, you can imagine in pain and sorrow where everything that you used to have is gone, where all of your children are dead, and where you have what looks like an incurable disease that is only going to result in your death. And Job has mentioned the fact that he wished he were dead, and Elihu is rightly disturbed by those remarks. And each and every one of us should be disturbed when anyone... Anyone you love, anyone you love, even if you don't love them, even if they're just somehow, somehow connected to you in some way, and they come to you and they say, I wish I were dead. 
That's not a statement that can be ignored or trivialized. It was Elihu's opinion that Job shouldn't long for death as the means to escape suffering, but rather that Job should be willing to embrace the lessons that suffering offers. And that's a keen insight, isn't it? Because people in pain might be able to squeeze out the question, what is it that you're trying to teach me? What, what is it that I need to learn? And I'm willing to concede that people in pain aren't always going to come up with a reason or a profitable answer. But Elihu basically says, whatever the answer is, that's not the answer. Job has to guard against giving up hope or giving into a life of sin in verse 21. And I'm again going to suggest to you that there's no proof that Job ever preferred wickedness absent pain. It wasn't like Job said, okay, here are my choices. Curse God and die. I've already decided I wasn't going to go that route. I'm going to deny God. He hasn't done that. He hasn't, he hasn't at any moment said, I don't believe that there's a God and I don't trust him, that hasn't happened either. Is there any chance of Job embracing deliberate sin because of his suffering? That's the very bet that God and Satan have made. That's the very bet that God and Satan have made. And the answer seems to be probably not. There's no evidence that Job prefers evil to suffering. But is it true in every case? For everyone, are there people who say, I'm just going to forget this God thing, and I'm going to forget this Jesus thing, and I'm going to forget this Bible thing, and I'm going to forget this church thing? But Job wants... To address the issue, are you suffering? Are you in pain? And if the answer is yes, then the message of Job is, God cares about you. God cares about you. That your pain matters to him. Your suffering matters to him. Tribulation and sorrow and affliction and persecutions matter to him. But then we understand something else when we read the New Testament. That for the believer, is tribulation ever very far? No, it's just right around the corner. Is sorrow very far? It's just around the corner. Are afflictions very far? Just around the corner. Persecutions very far? Not far at all. And then we end with Elihu's admonition. Look what it says. Behold, God is great. And we do not know him. Nor can the number of his years be discovered. Elihu is right. God is incomprehensible. He is eternal. He is immortal. He controls the autumn storms. He forms the cloud. He gives rains. He showers blessings. Who can understand clouds, rains, thunder? Elihu describes God's ability to control the storm and speak to the autumn storm and the winter storm and the summer storm. He then declares that God can establish the laws that govern all of these activities and then control them. Note what he doesn't say. He doesn't say that God is the storm because that would be wrong. In verse 27 it says, For he draws up drops of water, which distill as rain from the mist." 
which the clouds drop down and pour abundantly on man. Think about this, 1,800 BC, before there's weather technology, Elihu is reminding us that they have some comprehension of how water evaporates, how it goes into the atmosphere, how clouds are formed, and how God uses rain to bring water, and with water comes life. Indeed, verse 29, he can understand the spreading of the clouds, the thunder from his canopy. Look, he scatters his light upon it, that's the, that's the lightning, and covers the depths of the sea. For by these he judges the people. He gives food in abundance. What is he saying? God uses the cycles of the earth to warn people, even to warn the cattle. Those of you who are outside in the storm this afternoon, if you've ever been in a hailstorm, if you've ever seen it thunder and lightning, you don't have to be a meteorologist to say, I think that this storm is trying to tell us something. What is it trying to tell us? My mom said, eat your vegetables. (laughs) But then I understood that there's probably more that's being said than just eat your vegetables. He covers his hands with lightning. He commands it to strike. His thunder declares it. The cattle also concerning the rising storm. It's Elihu's way of saying, even if you don't know everything about everything, a storm in and of itself should tell you something. A storm is coming. Your mother might have said, don't you have enough sense to get in out of the rain? When you see it raining, find shelter. The whole point God established the the laws that govern the physical processes and, and everyone understood that rain brought life and life brought food and withholding the rain brought famine and judgment. And so, it's Elihu's way of saying God controls the storms. He controls the storms to get your attention. And he's connecting the dots. He's basically saying, is it possible that God could use suffering to get your attention so that you're willing to say, okay, you have my attention. I'm willing to hear whatever it is you have to say. We know that our problems aren't greater than our God. And that's an interesting insight that Elihu offers to each and every one of us. You see, Elihu understands a basic principle. That in direct proportion to how big your vision of God is. That's in direct proportion to how small your problems will begin to shrink. Job knew that God was a big God. Job knew that. He could wrestle with the mysteries of God and not diminish God's character or God's power in any way. And I think Job invites each and every one of us to do exactly that. To ask the question, how big is God? Can we wrestle with the mysteries of God? And even as we're wrestling with the mysteries of God... Is God's true power, is God's majesty, is God's character ever threatened by our sorrow, by our pain, by our difficulty? I think the answer is no. Swindoll writes, how big is your God? 
Big enough to intervene in your life? Big enough to heal your wounds? Big enough for you to hold him in awe? Big enough for you to offer him your ultimate trust and respect? Big enough to handle all your pain and all your worries? Big enough to love you unconditionally? Despite your sin and your failures? Big enough to comfort you? Big enough to restore you to a right relationship with him? I love that. How big is he? Big enough to fill the darkness with light? Big enough to fill the emptiness with himself? Big enough to fill the guilt with forgiveness? Big enough so that you can see beyond the here and the now to somewhere else. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that it's been a difficult study, but Lord, I pray, I pray, I pray that this study will help us be sensitive and compassionate that the study will help us be humble. That the study will help us be generous and gracious and kind and supportive to one another. Lord, I pray that it would help us to in humility admit that we don't have all of the answers to all of people's problems. But the answers that we do have, that Lord, you would give us wisdom and grace and mercy to communicate them in a way that makes sense. And again, Lord, I pray that you would allow people to see Jesus and to see his suffering and how that suffering results in hope when we love him and we accept him as our own. Again, Lord, give us (laughs) an added enthusiasm That, Lord, as we continue our study in this book, that we would long to learn the lessons that it invites us to consider. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.